Well, it was a bummer to have to miss the new member joining Sunday last week. Uh, we even missed my own brother and sister-in-law joining last week. Um, and I heard that there was a lot of hooting and hollering that I got downright presbycostal in here last week. <laughs> Our pastor had to publicly rebuke some in the audience. Anyway, we hated to miss, but it was an encouragement to be able to share the Word of God and to worship together with our sister church, Denton Presbyterian, and it's a joy to be back with you guys this week as well. Well, this morning we're going to begin a short series on the Lord's Prayer. It's going to take us through most of November, and we find this prayer both in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And we're going to be using Matthew's account of Jesus' prayer, found in chapter 6 of his gospel, if you want to turn there in your Bible. If you don't have your Bible, you can also find it printed for you on page 6 of your bulletin. Throughout Christian history, the Lord's Prayer has been held in highest regard. It's been considered the blueprint, the always relevant make and model of every prayer Christians should be bringing to their Heavenly Father. The great theologian Augustine found in the Lord's Prayer the genesis, the starting point, and foundational theology for all acceptable prayers. And he was right. We find in this prayer many things. In fact, we find in it the whole Christian life, and we find in it our triune God himself and our new identity found in Him. Young Christians, young theologians, I want you to draw two pictures on some space that you can find in your bulletin this morning. In the first picture, I want you to draw a king sitting on his throne. And on the second picture, you can draw your dad sitting in his favorite chair. And then as you listen... I want you to answer this question. Which kind of chair does your heavenly Father sit on when you come to Him in prayer? This is the good news of Jesus' gospel found in Jesus' own prayer. A prayer that He prayed and that He also taught us to pray as well because we're His brothers and His sisters. And it begins in Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And now also Romans 8, beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God stand forever. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask this morning for the help of Your Spirit, the illumination of the Spirit to understand Your Word, to understand it that we might know it, that we might grow in our love for it, that we may grow in our faith in the gospel that you hold out to us this morning, that we may walk away further assured of your love and your kindness for us and convicted and challenged. Do your ministry in each one of us as you see fit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So, who's the best? Out of hundreds of years of classical music history, who is the best composer? Is it Mozart? Is it Beethoven? Is it Tchaikovsky or Johannes Brahms? Certainly such a question. It's kind of a bad one, isn't it? I mean, there's so much subjectivity and personal taste involved. Or is it a bad question? One writer by the name of Clemency Burton Hill, she's a classical music radio DJ and she's an actress and a columnist for the BBC. She thinks that the question really is a no-brainer. For her, no other classical composer could warrant his own daily music slot where only his music is played than Johann Sebastian Bach. Mrs. Burton Hill admits that Bach wrote music for the glory of God, a glory that he makes almost palpable in his music. For her, Bach's music has a sense of otherness, inviting people into another divine world. But at the same time, she says, it's a music that's dripping with our humanity, conveying what it feels like to love and to lose and to laugh and to be betrayed and to know despair and joy. It encompasses the everythingness of everything of what it means to be human, she writes. Bach's music holds in tension the believable sense of Godhead and the futility of human existence. But when it comes time to prove to somebody else why Bach is the greatest, she calls it a fool's game. She quotes Albert Einstein, who said about Bach, Listen to him, play his music, love him, revere him, and then just keep your trap shut. For Clemency Burton Hill, Bach's music, although written in the first half of the 18th century, is timeless because it successfully wanders into meaningful themes and holding these themes, not letting go of one another in order to grab another one, but holding them together in tension. They're themes that don't go out of style, 
that don't pass away with the fads of yesterday or tomorrow. For her and for millions of others, box music may be old, but it will always be good. Each piece is an oldie but a goodie. And this is how the church of 2,000 years has approached the prayer taught to us by Jesus our Lord. At least until the modern era, anyway. The 4th century church father, St. Cyprian, writes, For what can be more spiritual prayer than that which was given to us by Christ, by whom also the Holy Spirit was given to us? What praying to the Father can be more truthful than that which was delivered to us by the Son who is truth out of His own mouth? And this is a different way of approaching prayer than the typical prayer is just talking to God that we find in much of evangelicalism. Prayer may be talking to God, but it's not just talking to God. The American individualist approach, the American evangelical approach, often highlights informality to a fault. It believes that the most important thing that one should experience in prayer is the idea that God is an informal, a buddy. That that God is so approachable that one should think of approaching Him as one does any common conversation. Praying is really no big deal in this view, because it's just so darn accessible. On the other hand, the Roman Catholic approach emphasized such a degree of separation between God and even those in the church that several fences had to be erected between us and God. One had to go through priests and dead saints and the Virgin Mary or a set of very formal prayers that had merit implicitly or explicitly attached so that one could receive a better guarantee of being heard. But the biblical approach, it's neither of these. It doesn't approach prayer as a cavalier, casual, common or romantic experience as does American evangelical culture. But it doesn't approach it as almost impossible, available only to the spiritual elite, as too much of Roman Catholicism has allowed of the past. When hearing the request, teach us to pray from his disciples, Jesus didn't say, pray however you want. God's just your invisible best buddy always ready to pop out of his bottle like a genie when you need him. Talking to him should be just as easy as talking to your friend Mike over lunch. Jesus actually had an answer to the disciples' request. He actually had an instruction to impart. But when asked to teach them how to pray, Jesus also didn't say, well, first, I mean, you need to make sure that you've passed enough spiritual tests and have won the right to approach Him. And you always have to use the exact right formula and the exact right words. Choose your words always carefully. Never show any emotion. He didn't say that either. A theologically accurate but devotionally rich and reverent approach to the Lord's Prayer it avoids both of these pitfalls. Jesus' prayer is like box music. It holds many truths in tension, 
not letting go of any of them in order to gain others. Jesus' instructions, they assume two things about us. First, he assumes that we're praying. He requests, excuse me, he repeats the phrase, when you pray, three times in verses 5 through 7. When you pray, when you pray, when you pray. He assumes that we agree with Martin Luther who called prayer the real calling of all Christians, which I find very interesting. Possibly the the chief of all the reformers who helped to begin a movement that would place so much stress on the Bible decided to call prayer our highest calling. Because we can read the Bible all we want and we're still going to find the Bible inviting us and commanding us to pray on almost every page. But Jesus assumes also something else. He assumes that we need to be taught. However much or however little we might be praying, however long or short our prayers are, regardless of our age and the faith and our experience in prayer, Jesus assumes we will always need to come back to his instruction on prayer. It's timeless and it's always needed and no one ever outgrows it, just like the gospel. And so he begins not by instructing his disciples on how to pray, but he begins by instructing them on how not to pray. He uses the prayers of those outside the household of faith, those outside the covenant family, the prayers of the stranger to teach the family of God how to pray. And so he begins with the hypocrites. Not those who are clearly strangers, to the Father, but those who are truly strangers to the Father. Although if they'd have it their way, you and I would believe the opposite. Because see, the Greek word for hypocrite in verse 5, it comes from the acting stage. It referred to Greek and Roman actors who often wore masks in order to pretend to be somebody else. It is a word that carries with it, with it the image of pretension treating others and the world around us as though it were our stage. And the problem with hypocrites is that they're good at acting. In our passage, they love to pray. Is there anything wrong with that? Well, of course not. We should all love to pray. They love to stand when they pray. Again, there's nothing wrong with standing in prayer, certainly. They love to pray in the synagogue and in public And no Christian would condemn praying in church or even public prayers, as we've had multiple public prayers in our service this morning already, and there will be more later. But as many of us know, the hypocrites are not condemned by Jesus for how or where they prayed, but why they prayed. Hypocrites of all sizes and shapes, all genders and socioeconomic backgrounds, do all that they do for one purpose, reputation management, accolades, thunderous applause and standing ovations, roses brought backstage after the show, a good review by the visiting critic in the next newspaper. 
They wear the mask because without it, they're worried about losing these things. And yet, the irony is that by keeping the mask on, they guarantee that the applause of men is all that they will receive. They achieve their goal, Jesus says, only to find to their great loss that their goal was worthless all along. Instead, motivations for prayer that come from the gospel seek not applause, they seek God Himself. And the reward is God Himself. The joy of communion with Him, answers to our prayers, unspeakable and mysterious rewards in the heavens that we know very little about. That is what awaits those who seek the Father more than the accolades of the stage, the accolades of others. In contrast, Jesus urges us to seek our Father who is in secret, secretly, behind a closed door, away from others. It's not a demand for private prayer only. It's a desire for hearts that want God more than they want others to think they want God. In verse 6, Our Father is in secret, stressing the intimacy and the nearness of God. An intimacy and a nearness that's always available to His children. But it doesn't just emphasize intimacy, but it also stresses the fact that God is invisible and He's happy to be so. While hypocrites want visibility more than anything else, our invisible God is happy to perform His great miracles of salvation and blessing in secret, quietly, providentially, without the accolades of His fallen creation, and usually without their thanks. It's an invitation to be like our Father. An invitation to act like what we are, Members of his family. But Jesus' warnings, they go beyond praying for the applause of men. He also warns us against praying for the applause of heaven. To heap up phrases like the Gentiles do in verse 7 is to pray in such a way that envisions a very long ladder between God and us. A ladder that we must climb every time that we approach him so that we Press God enough to be heard. For the pagans of Jesus' day, and for paganism today in all of its forms, whether in Tibetan monasteries or American hipster consumer mysticism, prayer is a means of getting divine attention. It's a matter of figuring out which words, which dances, and which postures and music the fickle gods would like to hear today. In the autumn of the year 1510, the young priest in training, Martin Luther, he left his studies in Wittenberg, Germany, and he made the long pilgrimage to Rome. And while there, his heart ached, within him to see salvation sold on one corner and sex sold on another corner, often to the same people. He would would watch hordes of people 
stand in line for hours so that they could give their money to priests who would offer them certificates from the Pope, which would supposedly cancel hundreds of years spent in purgatory from dead loved ones. And in order to put these certificates into effect, the faithful had to climb the steps of the Scala Sancta, the holy steps near the Lateran Basilica, stopping at each step to say a different prayer in Latin until they reached all the way to the top, their knees bruised and bloodied. Luther would later look back on this event in disgust and in anguish, thinking of what a poor view this betrayed of God and His grace. Such views of God, however they might afflict our prayers, and however they are adorned with Christian trappings, they reveal a theology of God that is pagan, not Christian. Praying for the applause of men, it's an achievable goal. It's just a worthless one. But praying for the applause of heaven is stupid and impossible. Worse, it reveals that we don't understand the heart of our wonderful Father very much at all. So Jesus turns from all of this and He says, Look, you don't have to perform and you don't have to beg. You're not actors on a stage and you're not street urchins from a Dickens novel either. You dearly loved children. And do you know how dearly loved children pray? Watch. I'll show you. And he says, Our Father. And the disciples, they should have stood shocked and dumbfounded as they thought back on this instruction. Not because the title that Jesus used, Father, It's not as though this was the first time the people of God had thought of God in fatherly terms. Surely every Jew would remember the first time a parental relationship was clearly expressed in Scripture between God and His people. They would know of Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, because there we find Moses speaking for God before Pharaoh, proclaiming, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Rather, the shock for the disciples comes from the phrase, Our Father. The one who had a unique sonship with the Father. A sonship that went beyond being a member of the chosen people. A sonship that went beyond even being the Messiah, the fulfillment of the promises made to David and his kingly line. The only begotten son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, this son was saying to his disciples, you're part of the family now. You're related to me. You are my brothers and my sisters, and now all that is mine is yours. My Father is your Father. My approach to Him is your approach. My fellowship with Him is your fellowship. 
my intimacy with Him is yours, my joy, your joy. You're no longer strangers or even servants. You're children. And this claim to calling God Father would bring to mind the story of the Exodus as mentioned a moment ago and the identity associated with it. Israel's salvation from slavery, the church's salvation from slavery, her redemption from the slaveholders' pits to be elevated as adopted sons and heirs. As N.T. Wright says of this exodus, it is intimacy and revolution brought together. It's a new identity. The Lord's Prayer begins where salvation begins, with identity. And we'll keep coming back to this in the coming weeks, but the Lord's Prayer it moves from identity to mission to provision to protection. Jesus begins His prayer where He, where he begins it for a reason. And He says to us, before asking for anything... Before doing anything, you must always start with who my Father is, which means also starting with who I am and then moving to who you are because of what we've done for you. And some of us could use this instruction because we are disproportionately focused upon achieving provision and protection through our own strategies and efforts instead of through prayer. Like, Jesus's, like Jesus teaches us to do later in his prayer. But we do this because we oftentimes disbelieve the first teaching of the prayer, which is our identity in God's family. And we disbelieve this, and we also ignore the second teaching, which is the mission he gives us, which we'll get into next week. But the key doctrine that ought to spring into our minds at the beginning of every prayer, whether it's a short sentence while driving or a longer period of groaning and weeping before the Lord, a prayer said before a meal, a prayer said during family worship, or even during our corporate times of prayer here at church, the doctrine that ought to lift up our heads to the throne is the doctrine of adoption. Your adoption is and my adoption to the Father through our union to His Son. But our union with with the Son, our union with the Son, the perfect righteousness of Jesus that's declared to be ours by grace through faith, and the relationship of intimacy that we have through adoption, it also calls for holiness. As the next part of this line will say. The first, petition, the first petition of the Lord's Prayer is, How would be your name? Be shown to be holy through us, Father. John Calvin says that in this first petition, we should wish God to have the honor He deserves. The Westminster Larger Catechism states that by this request, we're asking that God would, by His grace, enable us and incline us 
to glorify Him in thought and in word and deed. To glorify Him. To consider Him of utmost significance. To consider His name and purposes to carry the most weight in our lives. To matter the most so that the rest of the church and the world would see it and esteem Him the same way. This tension of new identity in the family and the concern for holiness that it calls for is is perfectly expressed by Paul in Romans chapter 8. He calls for us to not live as slaves to the flesh, as slaves to our evil desires, for we're no longer slaves as the Israelites were in Egypt. But instead, by the Holy Spirit, We're to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We're to pursue holiness. And then he says, beginning in verse 14 of Romans 8, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He connects our adoption to the call for holiness. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, to go back to Egypt, to go back to slavery to sin. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Since we share a communion with the Father the same communion the Son has, we are first given the Son's holiness and then empowered and told to walk in it. They go together. And all of this is summed up in the very first line of the Lord's Prayer before we take one more step. In his famous Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin expounds upon four rules of prayer. It's fantastic reading. It's very theologically rich, but it's also very devotional and emotionally satisfying as well. And his fourth rule is praying with confident hope. Praying with confident hope. And in this section, Calvin, like Bach does with his music, he seeks to hold in tension two truths that we find in this first line of the Lord's Prayer. Approaching God with proper fear by means of an acknowledgement of our sin and an unworthiness in light of His holiness, as Isaiah did in chapter 6 that Tyler read earlier. And then, on the other side, the incredible faith and the boldness that we can have in prayer because we are children of the Father. It's not the balancing of fear as dread with assurance as perfect repose. Neither is it fear as mere quiet reverence, as though what God really wants is a stoic face and monotone words and as little emotion as possible. Rather, fear means fear. In the Hebrew and the Greek, the word for fear means fear. 
A fear that recognizes that we're way out of our league, approaching a magisterial ruler and whose presence the angels cover their own unblemished feet and their faces of pure light. We're approaching the one who has a face that no one can look upon and live. We're approaching the one who has every right to snuff out our life because we and our race have spent every ounce of strength defiling the image that he created in us, abusing it, mocking it, considering it cheap, and stealing its glory from others and ourselves. This is true of us, and it's true of him. And yet he has chosen not to snuff out your life, and he promises to never choose to do so. And even more than this, he's taken every measure to win you and to lure you and to call you and to invite you to approach his throne. He has made you his child, and he has become your father. And he calls you to do two things in prayer, young Christians and older Christians. To remember that the chair that he sits upon, it is a throne commanding reverential devotion. And it's also an easy chair inviting intimacy. It's both. These two are not at odds. They're not at war with each other in the gospel. Rather, the gospel makes the tension of these things possible and even wonderful. Do you really want to be close to, to be intimate and transparent with someone you don't respect? Nobody wants to marry someone like that. You want to be close and intimate with someone you don't respect as a spouse? And at the same time, can you really respect someone that you barely know? But in our fallenness, we want everyone else to respect our decisions and our way of thinking and our opinions and our space and our freedom to live as we desire without hindrances. And our world is constantly yelling at us to respect yourself first. And how are we to respect ourselves? Well, we're to do it chiefly by devaluing and disrespecting others. You respect yourself best, we're told, having little to no regard for authority. To go your own way, to be your own person, to exercise your own unalienable rights, to discount what others think, and just be you. In other words, we want supreme respect and intimacy from others without having to respect anybody else. It's ludicrous. And we think the person in the mirror looks much better when the people that we're standing beside look much worse. And every day, your sin and my sin, aided by the world and the devil, tempt us to think this way even in the smallest of circumstances. But the gospel, the gospel in the Lord's prayer, it shines light through all 
of this darkness. And it tells us that respect for God does not come at the cost of being loved, of being cared for, of being respected and honored yourself. You can't be respected any more than being called an heir, a child of the king. There's no other identity that you could carve for yourself out there with all of your American rights and individualism and self-discipline and power couple or power family achievements that will rival such an honored title as you have in his royal family. You're going to find nothing better out there. And at the same time, intimacy with God does not come by dismissing His holiness and ignoring our unworthiness. Proper fear and faith, reverence and intimacy, they go together because they were always meant to. Not just between God and us, actually, but even between ourselves. It's a sermon for another time. But they find their perfect meeting in Christ. And as you approach the throne of the king, which is also the easy chair of your loving father, you come as a child, a beloved son or daughter, and you always come in the name and the merit of Christ. As Calvin tells us, Jesus bears us upon his Shoulders and holds us bound upon his breast so that we are heard by the Father in his person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And so, our Father, we come to you with the rest of our morning together continuing to come through the Son, continuing to come as your adopted children, your adopted heirs. And we come with confidence and we come with faith, knowing that you have received us in the Beloved. Even in your terrible holiness and majesty, you receive us as wonderful children. We come with delight. We come with joy in these truths. And we pray that this week you would equip us, you would lead us, you would enable us, as you say in Romans 8, to love you more and to act like the adopted children that we are and to throw away and cast aside our old identity, the slavery to our sin that used to characterize us. We ask instead that you would enable us to pursue holiness You call us to holiness, for you are holy, and so you ask that we be holy. And so with the holiness that you've given us in Christ, would you enable us to live in that holiness this week, displaying to all the world the love you've given to us as your children. We ask these things in the name of your Son, our older brother, and by the Spirit. Amen.